Hey, Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello Trojan fans and welcome to the Parastyle Podcast coming to you on a Friday. Obviously this is not Ryan Abraham, this is Keely York taking the reins on the podcast for one episode to take a final look at the Todd McNair trial and of course I couldn't do that without having Dan Weber on. Um, we both were there for the entirety of the trial, it ended up being more than a month. Um, so I will be joined alongside him for this podcast but first if you have any questions or comments for the show please drop us an email at podcast at uscfootball.com. You can call or text us at 424-254-9141. And you can find us on iTunes. You can subscribe to the show, rate the show, leave your comments at our direct URL, itunes.com slash podcast. And you can find us at all the major podcasting services like Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and Audioboom. That was a mouthful. Hopefully I got it right. Um, Dan, how are you doing? How, how are you feeling a couple days removed from the podcast, uh, not the podcast, the trial? Yeah, uh, yeah, hopefully this may be, you know, the, the last time we have to go into, into a great deal of depth. Uh, uh, it is, you know, it, it leaves you empty. I mean, this is something, I know they were talking about it at the trial, that whichever way it goes, some of the lawyers who would stop by, uh, USC connected lawyers would say at the end of a trial like this, you feel empty no matter which way it goes. And they were talking about the lawyers because you put in years of work into something like this. I think, you know, to some extent, we, to not the extent that, that the, the attorneys have, but we put in a lot of, you know, time and thought and effort. And when it turns out, you know, the way it turned out, you kind of want to say, you know, uh, there's probably not much we can do about it at this point other than, uh, you know, remember some of the things we want to remember and let the stuff go that, that we just don't want to don't want to think about again. So uh, maybe we can do a little bit of that uh, here today. Yeah, I think that was his name was Nick. I think that was the lawyer, one of the many lawyers that paid us a visit. But he said that we kind of have withdrawals from the trial. And I think that's true. I definitely have a little bit of withdrawals of after going so intensely covering the trial. There's a little bit of, of, a, of a miss there or a letdown, too. It was so much of our day. I mean, for me, coming in from Orange County, you're talking about leaving, you know, by seven pretty much and, mm-hmm. uh, and getting home much of the time, you know, after seven, seven thirty, something like that. So, uh, so that was a big, uh, you know, that was uh, a big investment of our time for five weeks. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it'll it'll take a while, I think, to decompress. Yeah. Plus, I got I got to give you special uh, props because you were typing hours and hours and hours each day. I don't know how you did it. I think you're like icing your fingers as we speak. But that was a, a extreme effort by you to bring uh, the play by play to the peristyle. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it it was sort of an extension of ghost notes at practice, and, and and the attempt was to try to let people see it, hear it, feel it the way we were seeing it and, and hearing it and feeling it, and, uh, and and make up their own minds, because there were days where I thought the commenters kind of picked up on what we were picking up on mm-hmm. without us telling them, you know, they might say, uh-oh, 
what about that testimony? Or, uh-oh, did this go the way, you know, you wanted if you were really, you know, pulling for Todd? And um, so that's kind of what we were trying to do. Uh, obviously not a court reporter, but, uh, uh, yeah, I just figured – it's so hard to sit there and try to figure out, oh, is this going to be important? Is that going to be important? What about this? Or then you got to go back and try to reconstruct. So I just decided we'll try to get you everything we can as, as close to, you know, what was being said, as close to the evidence, as close to the testimony. And then uh, you guys can, can kind of, you know, decide for yourself. And, and that's what a lot of people did. And that was, uh, I was impressed with, how people followed it, and I think they picked up on the right things. I, I don't know that we knew how it was going to go, but uh, we knew, and I think they knew, that this wasn't a slam dunk by the time it was finished. This was, uh, you know, Todd had a great, had a great, uh, you know, couple of days on the stand, and uh, and and Bruce Boylet, you know, his his closing was was terrific. He is as advertised, and yet uh, still wasn't enough. Yeah. Well, before we get too far into it, I want to thank our sponsor, Trader Joe's. It's always nice when you have a sponsor that you actually use. And and Ryan is actually using this sponsor today because he's on the way to Catalina. And I saw uh, his Instagram. He has a whole load of of, uh, Trader Joe's food because they're going camping on Catalina. So a nice little treat for for the weekend. Well, you know, he... uh... He's, he's got to take all the Trader Joe's stuff to get through the weekend. The one thing he doesn't have to take is a cell phone, apparently. I know. Ryan, where they go is completely out of cell phone range. That would be, uh, that would be kind of a panic, panic situation for a lot of people uh, to know you're going, you're going for a weekend and you are out of, uh, out of cell phone range. So uh, good luck, Ryan. You're not going to hear this, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, good luck. Yeah, good luck indeed. Um, so you kind of alluded to it already. Um, I think the difference between the end of week two of the trial, where we heard Todd McNair's two-day testimony, where he kind of made Kostas Stokovic, the lawyer for the NCAA, look bad as far as his argument, and then you head into week two, you have Dennis Thomas, um, and then you have Eleanor Myers, and it kind of felt like the the tables turned a little bit because they were such strong characters and you and I had mentioned how we didn't feel like Bruce fully uh, went after them as, as he did as far as Shep Cooper or Rod Uphoff. How did that kind of switch between week two and week three? Yeah, they didn't. They, I mean, they obviously had uh, Roscoe Howard and Rodney Uphoff and Shep Cooper, who was the first video. Uh, they had them dead to rights. They were, you know, they weren't telling the truth. They said they weren't participating. They obviously were. Uh, and a jury picked up on that, and, and they made the case at that point that, uh, you know, the process that the NCA went through to, you know, convict Todd was wrong and flawed, and uh, the jurors all believed that. And, uh, you know, they all, I think a great number of them, wanted to, you know, reward Todd uh, for for what the NCA did to him. Uh, and so, but then... Uh, you get Eleanor Myers, who's you know, the grandmotherly law professor who's in her ninth year on the Committee on Infractions after starting with the Todd, Todd McNair case. And they almost allowed her. And then Dennis Thomas, who portrayed himself as, a, as in the know about how college football coaching and recruiting and all that went, and, 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 and basically just a blowhard that didn't know anything about anything. 
and was as disconnected as you could possibly be. But those two kind of got off the stand as, well, they weren't as bad as the others. They weren't really obviously out to, you know, get Todd McNair that we could prove. And yet, you know, they were, you know, they were part of the, the group that got Todd McNair. And, for example, I think with Eleanor Myers, they and they had a couple of her emails that made it clear she had real question about uh, the process and the evidence against uh, and the testimony against uh, Todd. But then they they made up uh, basically they said, but she needed to see the transcript, and it wasn't ready right away. So after a month, she saw the transcript and she had a great you know revelation. Oh, now I understand. But what they didn't explain was the next two months where they still didn't come to a verdict. Uh, no one you know, pursued that. Why did it take them two more months? What was going on then? Why don't we have any emails from anybody uh, you know, about that process? Why don't we know when the final decision was written? Who wrote it? Did Eleanor Myers couldn't even tell you whether she even heard it. She absolutely said she didn't see it. She didn't even think she maybe heard it. I think there were some flaws in what those people said uh, that probably is harder. It was easier to go after Chef Cooper, Roscoe Hard, and Rodney Uphoff. I mean, you could just go after them with everything you had because it was obvious what they were doing. Uh, and, and they were doing stuff they weren't supposed to be doing. She got them dead to rights. With Eleanor Myers and, and, and Dennis Thomas, it would have been harder to go after them, but uh, I think it would have been worthwhile. And I know when we expressed that, there were people who were surprised that we were saying that, um, but I think they needed to. I think if you have the belief that this was a setup and that the verdict was reached first, and they knew how badly they wanted to penalize USC, and they knew eventually they probably think they needed, to, for lack of institutional control, just to, for the looks of it, you needed to tie. You couldn't do that. Say USC was guilty of lack of institutional control and hit them with the worst penalties in modern football. If you didn't have a single person at USC tied to the case, you just that just doesn't work. And they they knew it. So they had to tie, tie, you know, tie Todd in, and they thought everybody in their group was going to get the picture, and apparently some of them didn't get the picture right away, and so they really had to come down on them. But the fact that that wasn't just hammered from day one maybe is something you look back and say, they called Todd a lying, you know, unethical so-and-so from day one, back starting in 2008. I think in this trial, you maybe had to portray every single person in the most unf- uh, from the NCAA in the most unfavorable possible light. And I'm not sure that happened. And now you can look back and say, apparently it didn't. It looked like the jury was kind of saying, well, Bad stuff happened here, but, you know, it's so hard to know. It was kind of a 50-50, and, you know, we flipped a coin and Todd lost. You didn't want to get into that position where it was 50-50. You probably needed, uh, you know, to hammer 
those people as hard as the NCAA hammered Todd. And I'm not sure that happened because the NCAA didn't miss a chance to hammer Todd ever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree because when we did instant analysis, if you go back to the Eleanor Meyer day, I was saying, I was waving the alarm or sounding the alarm that Eleanor Myers got away with a lot. Um, and I, I didn't know if, if Bruce, that was a strategy that Bruce had, or if at this point in the trial, it didn't matter. But when we got to hear from the jurors after the verdict, it seemed like Dennis Thomas and Eleanor Myers definitely had an effect on them, which just makes me question the whole, their, their judgment a little bit, because at least from the reporter side of things, everyone thought that Dennis Thomas was the worst, uh, witness they had called up, but apparently they thought, oh, his football experience meant something, which then begs the question, why didn't Bruce go after, hey, your football credentials aren't that that impressive compared to USC in a way. Um, but you got to talk to Anthony Bruno, the, the lead presiding juror. How did he, uh, what did he have to say about the credibility as far as Eleanor Myers and Dennis Thomas? Yeah, he brought that up. He, said, he, he kind of, I think what he was trying to say, because I think he realized credibility and those two isn't is isn't something he wanted to exactly say what he said was the reason i brought those two up afterward is i didn't think those two were out uh i didn't think they had absolute bias against todd mcnair i didn't think dennis thomas for example would allow todd to be railroaded now again this is probably the kind of thing where if you don't understand how the ncaa committee on infraction works if you're an outside person just sitting there listening to all this, you probably can't process how this all how this all went down. Uh, so you know, I think listening, you know, to Dennis Thomas, I mean, he could not have hammered Todd McNair any worse. I mean, he couldn't have. He second guessed everything. He second guessed that October 29th um, recruiting night when Reggie Bush didn't you know, show up to, you know, take care of Percy Harvin, and they had the three phone calls that, unbeknownst to Todd, I completely believe, uh, went to Lloyd Lake's phone. Uh, he could not have said more negative stuff about about um, uh, uh, Todd. And I just think that probably should not have gone unanswered as, as much as possible. Uh, he didn't know what he was talking about. He doesn't know. If you're running the MEAC, you have no more understanding of how uh, recruiting at the level USC was at at the time, how it works, than than you know than I would flying a you know a, a jet plane. And yet he portrayed himself as an absolute expert, and the NCAA got away with allowing him to be the one voice of a college football coach in that trial, other than Todd's, and that probably needed to be counteracted uh, in some way or the cross-examination had to be, because, I mean, let's face it, Dennis Thomas would probably tell you, Dennis Thomas did a good job on the stand uh, in the third person, the way he liked to talk about himself. And the more you got Dennis Thomas to talk about himself in the third person, the way he did, I think he hurt himself. I think I would have probably you know, tried to keep him on the stand for as long as he could stay. And I would have tried to point out that 
Dennis Thomas had a wonderful recollection at ev- for every question the NCAA asked him. He had zero rec- re- uh, recollection of anything that uh, you know Bruce Boilett asked him. So I would have probably tried to uh, you know score some points there. I, I think they, I think they thought, obviously in our minds the NCAA lied about Todd. They changed the words around. They added meanings that weren't there. They got all the facts wrong about the one most crucial piece that everybody agrees is the most crucial, you know, fact in the case. And once we have that established, none of the rest of this stuff matters all that much because of course they lied about, you know, of course they published false information about Todd. And of course, you know, they did it and damaged him, you know, significantly. So if you believe that and the, the uh, appellate judges, in California, pretty much believe that, and Judge Saller pretty much believe that. Uh, maybe you go in there thinking we don't have to to do that. We don't have to look, you know, mean spirited, take these people down. Who, I mean, Eleanor Myers sits there and says, "I like to be the smartest person in the room. I do all the reading and I do all the stuff that I." And so you would say, "Oh, your first ever case." You still thought you were the smartest person in the room. Is that right? Well, that's what I like to do. Then you say, well, Eleanor, you had three people in the room, Shep Cooper, Roscoe Howard, and Rodney Uphoff, who were sending emails and participating and doing all these things. And your answer about that was, oh, I didn't realize what they were doing in the room. They were sitting three feet away from me. They were behind me. I didn't know. I was the smartest person in the room, but I had no idea what was going on in the room. That's what she basically said. And she was kind of able to sell that. And I, you'd have probably had to look like a bad guy going after her, but she shouldn't have been allowed to sell that. That was, that was you know, she basically contradicted herself. Mm-hmm. I think it seemed to me that Bruce tried to be the nice guy for the most part. Um, I think in order to establish credibility for the jury and kind of play the opposite role to Costa. But at the same time, I think that was a mistake when you needed him to go after certain people harder, like Eleanor Myers, like you just said. Um, but well, Because if you've been working this case as long as they have, you know what the NCAA did. Yeah, And you know what each of those people had to agree to do. And I think that had to inform everything you did. I, I, I would have treated them with disgust and disdain. I mean, that was kind of Costa's uh, approach to mm-hmm. Todd. Yeah. And every time the NCAA put up that, that uh, uh, slide on the big screen of the eight people I mean, I would have, those eight, there would have been enough of those people on there that they would not have wanted. Now, I, when they put that up, I would say, geez, you really want to put, you know, Petuto up and so-and-so up and so-and-so. Well, they figured they could get away with it. And they, they kind of did, unfortunately. Uh, and yeah, I would have, you know, and, and I don't think it's second guessing that we said it right then right immediately we walked out 
you know, did instant analysis and said, this is how we saw it. And, and we were, that bothered us, I think at at that point. Yeah. I mean, you kind of already alluded to it, but I think that in some ways McNair's lawyers were too close to the case and too close to McNair because the fact that they only relied on Todd McNair and called only Todd McNair to the stand um, in order, they didn't use anyone else to corroborate his story. Now, we don't know the full picture of who they asked and, and if they got turned down or whatnot, but I definitely think that for as many punches that the NCAA was swinging and that they tried to get things to stick to the wall, why not have someone else to back up Todd, you know? Well, I think you're, I think you're right. I mean, and I think it would be very difficult if you were an NCAA coach, especially like, say, you know, you brought in uh, Lane Kiffin to say, well, why couldn't you continue Todd? And he, and he would be able to say, well, absolutely, you can't be a coach at this level and not be able to recruit for a year. That's just not even remotely possible and really explain in absolute detail why that's true. Because the NCAA tried to play that down like it was almost nothing. And that was, that was false. That was completely false. That part of their case and anybody who upheld that uh, was was not telling the truth. Okay, they were. That was uh, if Dennis Thomas kind of, you know, oh, people come back from that. No big, you know, and yeah, they keep and, and uh, you know, a, a coach. Now whether you could get, I mean, let's face it, the NCAA would love to take down uh, Lane Kiffin. I mean, they wanted to take him down in this case, you know, eight, ten years ago, eight, ten years ago. Uh, so. Uh, Maybe could you get Matt Rule? I mean, here's the, the guy who wanted to hire him at hire Todd at Temple. He's now the coach at Baylor. Well, considering the precarious situation Baylor is in, not you know Matt Rule is there to be the cleanup guy, but would Matt Rule be remotely able to come in and tell the true story about what happened at Temple and and where, you know, who blocked Todd and who made made it sure it looked like after he was going to be hired that he wasn't hired. Could you get uh, uh, Bruce Arians, the retired coach at, at you know uh, at the Arizona Cardinals, and who was Todd's coach at, at Temple, to tell the Todd McNair story and to tell, you know, could you ask Bruce Arians how did how did Todd McNair sign three contracts? How was he shown his new office at Arizona? How was he you know introduced to his players as their new coach, and then? You know, because of the owner saying, I don't like this and I don't like that, he's not, he doesn't have a job. Um, could Bruce Arians come in, uh, you know, or, or, you know, I don't know that he could because he would have had to probably say that it was the owner, uh, Mr. Bid- Bidwell, who, uh, you know, uh, said we don't want Todd McNair and, and, and for what reasons. Uh, but if you could have found one of those people to really go into, this is the harm that, that befell Todd McNair as a result of what the NCAA did, um, you know, I think that would have helped. And again, um, the, I think the jury wanted more evidence that they could use to go Todd's way. For example, what if you brought, and, and this has always bothered me a little bit, Faison Love, the actor, is a friend of, uh, of Todd's. He also, from what I understand, grew up in San Diego and 
whether he's a friend of Lloyd Lake, maybe some kind of an acquaintance of Lloyd Lake. Well, could Faison Love have come in and say, hey, Todd McNair doesn't know Lloyd Lake from the man in the moon. I was there that night when that photo was taken. He, had, he could have he had no idea who Lloyd Lake was. That alone, if you, that one single thing right there, if that would have happened in the trial, man, I think it's over. All of the NCAA attempts to say that, you know, Todd, you know, was connected to Lloyd Lake, knew Lloyd Lake, whatever, uh, Faison Love could have, you know, handled that if, if he would have said that. Uh, again, we don't know what the answer there is, but it certainly would have been a way to basically, you know, knock the, uh, you know, knock the whole NCAA case out of the water. If you, if you had any way of saying, uh, and, and let's face it, it is, if you're in that jury room and you're thinking, well, wait a minute, Faison Love was a friend of Todd's and he was out with Todd that night, but he also knows Lloyd Lake from San Diego. What? And we don't hear anything. We don't know. We just say, oh, that's interesting. What does that mean? Yeah. So, and, and if the only person you have is Todd uh, speaking for Todd, as great a job as he did, you can't do any better job than he did. Yeah. And he did make Costa look like Costa had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. But that seemed to happen a long time before the jury went in to, to deliberate. I think you needed to shore it up uh, in a few other places. And again, if you thought we've got the goods on them, they lied about him. They put it out there. They didn't have any, you know, it's obvious they lied because they changed the words. They changed the facts. Uh, clearly they lied. If you think you've got that and they can't get away from that, maybe you don't go there. But then you realize now, you know, later that the jury didn't think they had that it was like, well, yeah, they changed the words around. Yeah, yeah, but stuff happens, you know, and, and both sides had things they couldn't exactly explain. And, and the NCAA was basically able to do that and get away with it. And you needed to probably give them less uh, less wiggle room. And, and one of the, or a couple of the ways might have been uh, a couple of more people, experts or people that really knew that what was going on to testify for Todd. Yeah. I mean, it should be, <laughs> it's horrible enough that, that you were looking at people who could testify that won't directly get, uh, hammered by the NCAA if they testify against the NCAA. I feel like that should be a point in itself, but regardless, but why, if you were the lawyers, what, why aren't you bringing in other people? I know a lot of people asked, well, why don't they bring in Reggie Bush? I think we got the sense that the NCAA was going to make it more about Reggie and his violations versus Todd. Um, so did you get the sense that the lawyers didn't want to bring in a witness that the NCAA could then turn around and make a show about the witness rather than help Todd? Yeah, I mean, Reggie Bush had already testified in the NCAA case that Todd had no idea what was going on. They totally dismissed that. It was like, that didn't even happen. Now, whether you could, you know, go back there, because the NCAA would have gone and said, wait a minute, you're a documented liar about this or about that or whatever. And they would have really relitigated the USC case. So I think, you know, the McNair people wanted to make 
attorneys made a reasonable decision that this is about Todd, and this is about the NCAA lying about Todd and defaming Todd. And so they didn't want to get into where they would have to defend um, you know, Reggie on cross-examination or, or any of that, because there was a lot of, uh, you know, stuff with Reggie you probably didn't want to have to defend. Uh, I think, for example, uh, they thought the NCA sold the story that Todd had to know what Reggie was doing. Uh, I don't think there's any question about it. They decided, and I think I might have gone into that a little more in detail. Um, they probably still think that Todd kind of knew about Reggie's car. Nobody paid any attention to Reggie's car. Honestly, we were all around, uh, you know, at the time. Reggie kind of realized what kind of everybody was kind of, you know, laughing about a nine-year-old, big old Impala, uh, that they were like, he didn't bring it around. You didn't see, I mean, you know, he was... Often, the only times I ever saw him was in somebody else's car. So to act like, oh, everybody would have, no, everybody wouldn't have known. And could you have made that more clear to the jury that everybody, you know, didn't know that and that wasn't something anybody was, because when you got to the uh, the hearing, you know, uh, the Notre Dame, uh, Missy Convoy, who was, was so interested in that car, and they all still thought, Dennis Thomas, they thought that car, the souped-up version, you know, that was on the cover of the magazine after Reggie had, you know, was in the NFL and paid for by the magazine, was the car Reggie had. They still didn't understand that. I mean, this is and this is what drives you crazy. The Notre Dame woman, number two, uh, Missy Convoy at Notre Dame, had so much interest in Reggie's car, a nine-year-old Impala, but never seemed to be very interested in a, there was a Notre Dame All-American who uh, kept driving his uh, cars off the road in, in the summer in South Bend, the last of which, right before he played against USC that fall, was a brand new Cadillac. And for some reason, no one ever asked him where he got that brand new Cadillac that he drove off the road. But they were all over, you know, USC and, and Reggie and uh, and that kind of thing. Could you have made it more clear that it was very reasonable for Todd not to have known all that much about what Reggie was doing and that the fact that Reggie didn't want people to know what he was doing and the fact that, I mean, I, I heard Reggie just one day just went nuts over his dad had done something publicly and I'm listening to Reggie you know, at the Galen Center on a, on a telephone, and he, you can't not listen to him because he was yelling so loud at his, his you know, his, his stepfather about he didn't want him around, he didn't want him doing that kind of stuff, and um, it was reasonable if you were there to think people would not know what was going on with Reggie. But if you're in that jury, and and from hearing them later, they didn't think that was the case. They they were pretty sure that Todd would have known. And you probably had to, you know, hit that harder if you could. And, uh, and they didn't, I mean, I thought we thought, for example, they did a wonderful job of showing how the NCAA's number of phone calls was basically bogus. That it was one and a half a week. Uh, when you subtract all of the calls that went to voicemail that were just seconds. Uh, but the NCAA made that, 
stick and a little, you know, as much as we thought they didn't, I think they kind of did. And how do you, how do you get that out of the, out of people's minds? I don't know. I mean, now you look back at it and you say, you wish you tried harder to do that, but it, it looks like they kind of just said, well, we weren't sure of everything Todd McNair said. And we weren't sure. We know for sure the NCAA did, a, did stuff they shouldn't have done, but they left it at sort of a 50, 50 and they were, convinced that if it was 50-50, it went in favor of the NCAA because then Todd hadn't absolutely proved that they were, uh, they were lying about him. So that was a, you know, it's, it's hard to do defamation and prove it. But, um, and it's hard to be second-guessing. I mean, we feel terrible. We, we have such great respect for Bruce Borlett, mm-hmm. Scott Carr, and then Todd's first attorney, uh, uh, Scott Thompson, who – you know, is the best friend you could possibly have if you're an NCAA coach uh, under siege by the uh, by the NCAA. And the way they have, you know, stuck with Todd and the way they've, you know, supported him and uh, and been there for him is is wonderful. I mean, these are really good people, and they're they're good attorneys. Uh, they're really good attorneys. Uh, it's hard to to be in a situation where you say well, maybe you could have done this or maybe you could have done that because you really don't want it to sound like you're, uh, you're second-guessing them uh, at all. Yeah. I know it might, but, uh, but you know, uh, it, it, this is a tough one. It, it's, for all these years and, and what, what happened to Todd, and you realize when you were there, you know, and, and, and the chance to talk to him because he hasn't really been talking to the, um, you know, to media because of the, you know, the case that was all, you know, the lawsuit that was ongoing for so many years. So you kind of have lost touch a little bit with Todd and you realize how much you like him, how good a guy he was, how good a guy he, you know, good, good a person he was on the staff, how, you know, just had a, a way about him. Um, uh, what good, what a good recruiter he was for USC um, and how, how much he loved being at USC. Uh, and, to see, you know, what has happened and through almost no fault of his own makes you pretty sad. Yeah. I mean, that was one of those things that (coughs) when you're there for a month, you really get to pick up the character of people and see how they are when they're not the, on the stand or when they're not, the spotlight isn't on them. And you could just tell that they were good people. And it was also interesting just seeing, the bond between Scott Thompson and Todd McNair. I mean, they were two peas in a pod at this point. Um, they would sit yeah, together. I, I, that was really impressive that, that you had a really good feel about, about, you know, his attorneys as people and how they, how, how much they wanted to do right, you know, by Todd uh, and how hard, you know, they fought uh, this, you know, this whole time. I don't know that anybody else would have, uh, you know, been able to, you know, to hang in there, the, you know, the way they did. And, uh, and for Todd, you know, he had some tough times, obviously, you know, you could, you could understand that, but, you know, he's come, he's come fighting back and, you know, coaching is, you know, he show you the video of his little seven and eight year old pop winter kids and their Cardinal and gold uniforms. And, you know, uh, and then, you know, to now to have a full-time, you know, coaching and, and and staff job at a uh, you know at a high school this coming year and to see him you know coming back 
you know, it's great. I mean, you wish he'd come back with getting, you know, full measure of justice. And this is where it's so tough for the the two charges, the two claims that were dropped were, you know, Anthony Bruno said, I think they could have prevailed on that. And that's why he brought that up. Uh, that one, the first time they got a chance to ask a question of when the jury was deadlocked um, of, of Judge Schaller was, uh, you know, what's the story? Uh, we thought there were going to be multiple claims and then the claims for negligence and breach of contract were dropped. And what's the story there? Well, later on, you know, uh, presiding juror Bruno says the reason he brought that up was he thought they could have prevailed and he said, we wanted to do something for Todd McNair, and we could have given him those two. Uh, now, whether that, you know, again, that's spec. as he said, I don't want to speculate, and that is speculation. And you don't know all of the, uh, you know, jury instructions for those charges and all of the, you know, the impacts of, of, of the law, and I certainly don't know. But he said they really wanted to be able to give Todd McNair uh, something, you know, to walk out of there and justice. And when you look at it now, how wonderful it would have been if Todd McNair could have won two of three uh, claims against the NCAA. That's the kind of thing that would be invaluable for Todd McNair going forward to say that you prevailed over the NCAA. It would be wonderful if it was obvious that the NCAA lost two of the claims against Todd McNair. Uh, that didn't happen. And that's, uh, that's something you feel bad about. Uh, it's just, that's a, that's one you really wish that Todd could have come out of there with a win or two. And it sounds like the jury wanted to give him that. Uh, so it makes it really tough. Yeah. Well, let's, we actually have a couple questions we got sent in. Um, Jim B actually wonders who was behind dropping the first two claims? Was it Todd or his lawyers? If I were Todd, I would have, and they sp- smeared my name. I would want more than just money. So what? What was behind dropping the two claims? Because I think walking out of this trial, that was the biggest mistake made. Well, I think what the attorney, I mean, what uh, presiding juror Bruno said was kind of the thing they might have been worried about was that well, we can't give you defamation, which is the big one, and uh, the one where the punitive damages and all of that come in. Uh, and that's the one that would have hurt the NCA by far the most and would have helped Todd the most. But uh, I think they were looking at it and saying, well, they might not be able to give us defamation. If the other two charges are in there, they might just say, you don't get defamation, but we'll give you the other two, which are uh, you know, significantly less in terms of damages and, and all that kind of thing. Uh, so I think one of the thinking, you know, the, the ways they were thinking about it was that if we take those two off the table, we focus on everything's about defamation. And because we know we got them not telling the truth about Todd and publishing that and acting on it and saying it's absolutely true, he did this, he did that, he said this, and we know that's not true, we're going to get them on that. We really are. And that didn't turn out the way it was. And yes, you would really now take a win in either one of those. Again, we don't know the law. I know Bruce has said too that there were things about the the, the law that might 
make those more difficult than, say, uh, uh, presiding juror Bruno, who was himself a lawyer, uh, might have uh, have have known in his speculation. But uh, but yeah, I think you know that was a that was a that's a, a decision made by the attorneys. Obviously, your your client is going to go along. I mean, is going to have to agree to that. But I think that was a that was a uh, you know a tactical uh, you know decision in this trial is not to get the jurors hung up in those other two where they could say okay we won't we can't quite get there on defamation but we'll definitely give him the other two uh, they kind of said we don't want to give the jury that option uh, we're gonna we're gonna go for defamation and then uh, didn't work out. Yeah, well, speaking of Anthony Bruno, let's go to a question from Steve in Poway, I believe. Uh, he says, it's been my experience that impaneled lawyers often have a hard time changing roles. Do you think head juror Anthony Bruno may have re-argued the case behind closed doors in the jury deliberations? Well, I think what he told me was that he really tried to take a back seat as much as possible and that he, I mean, I think there was no question he was going to be the presiding juror. I don't think we knew all of his background. We purposely also didn't try to do too much research on the case the way he said he didn't either. Uh, but uh, so he said when they took the first straw vote, you know, fairly soon, he was surprised. It was 7-5 and, and there had been not much arguing going on. I think he did really get strongly involved. When they got to 8-4, I think he got very, you know, my guess would be, he's a presiding juror, you know, it's his responsibility. So I think that's when they got tied up with the whole question of does the, uh, you know, the one juror who was excused uh, because of proficiency in English in terms of some of these, uh, you know, more theoretical and nuanced terms and what have you. And, and she did admit, you know, that she didn't think she was able to, she was slowing him up and wasn't able to, to really be part of the deliberation. So uh, I, I, I think no, no question he asked for, um, and then I, my guess would be he was involved in asking for the interpreter, which was the impetus to get her off the jury because that's not allowed in California. Uh, so, and if once he started, for example, when he read, uh, you know, the six pages of, testimony by um, by Lloyd Lake and they went over it word for word for word and asked for the poster board where they could put up each uh, he said it broke down to like six basic things that were said there and were they true or false and what was supporting each one my guess is he was the one doing that so uh, is it possible to, to not play the role as a lawyer if you are a lawyer probably not I think he probably didn't did not start that way, but when they got close, um, I think as a presiding juror, that's uh, that's probably what you do. Uh, if I'm a, you know, the lawyers on the case, I mean, I think I was kind of stunned that a lawyer was on the case. Yeah, I think I was even more stunned that he was a lawyer who had played college football. Uh, he played lightweight football at Navy, but he was a a college football player and he uh you know he was and 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 obviously both sides had to agree 
you know, to have him on there. Um, and, you know, did they feel like in a case like this, you needed, you know, someone like that to uh, explain uh, the details, of, you know, all the finer points and all that? Uh, I don't know. Uh, and, I, and I don't know what I would have decided if, you know, I mean, for example, did anybody realize that both he and Costa, uh, uh, Stoyakovich, uh, both were graduates of Georgetown Law School? Uh, Anthony told me, he said, gee, I didn't know that until I read it. You wrote it when I read it. He said, <laughs> I didn't didn't realize we were both, you know, Georgetown Law grads. So, I don't know. There were, there were th- you know, and, here, and like Todd now, he's a, he's a coach of, uh, you know, uh, a flag football coach, a ten-year-old team, and uh, there were a lot of a lot of things that that, that kind of came together, and uh, and the presiding juror being a lawyer, and uh, how that worked. You know, I guess you can look back and say, wow, it didn't work as well as you'd have liked. Although maybe if you'd have had the other other two claims, it might have worked well for you. Um, so uh, this will be eternally second guessed and, and that makes yeah. it even worse that yeah makes it worse if you've got something that you're going to keep going back to and saying if only if only yeah i mean it was to give a behind the scenes moment we found out that he was a lawyer during deliberations during when the two parties were talking to judge Schaller. someone mentioned well bruno's a lawyer and we all looked in the at each other in the in the the seating where we were and we were all shocked like wait what just happened because we were going through that whole uh trial thinking i thought he was more of a construction worker i was trying we try to guess who the jurors are because you're just sitting there and you have nothing else to do and that was shocking i mean but did well, i thought he, I, my, he dressed out i mean he you know with jeans and a yeah you know uh, uh you know kind of a plaid shirt whatever and um uh more like a, I mean, like you would have guessed he certainly didn't try to look like a lawyer uh, no, at no. all. Uh, maybe like a foreman. Yeah, or that's something. what I was I mean, he was definitely in charge. There was no question he yeah. was in charge. I mean, he was from day one that he walked in there. But uh, but yeah, if you just said he played college, you're hearing little things as we're going along. Oh, he played college football. And he's a lawyer. It's like really. Okay. Wow. I wonder how that's going to work out. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that was where, yeah, those were, because I think we were trying to not go into that. We were trying to just take it on, on the evidence and trying to get into the minds of the jurors with what they were seeing in court. But, you know, everybody's coming from a different place. I mean, you can say it's, it has to be just what, what's presented in the courtroom and nothing else. And yet, Everybody brings, you know, who knows where everybody, I mean, just, we're trying to guess, guess where everybody in the jury went to grade school or whatever, you know, I mean, you couldn't even begin to put that all together, you know, I mean, it just, and he didn't agree. I mean, one of the numbers we heard was that nine or 10 of the jurors had never heard of the NCAA. He wasn't sure that that was the case. He said some of them knew, they all knew about USC. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, he said a decent number of them were people who understood football. Uh, but then this whole extra layer of, of the NCAA and how this all fits in and, and you know, how much assistant college football coaches get paid and all that, that might have been a world 
that they had never, you know, had ever been open, you know, to or ever even imagined existed. Or who are these NCA people and what is it they do and why do they do it and all of that? That would be that would be hard to get up to speed uh, in a trial, even for five weeks. You know, even if you're there for all that time, yeah. that'd be hard. Did we? Know. Ever, oh, sorry. Did we ever figure out um, what happened with when they first requested Todd McNair's testimony? Did Bruno say what they were looking for? No, I, I, I'm trying to. No, I don't think I actually asked him that. My, um, I don't know if that was going to be similar to the Lloyd Lake uh, reading at the end. Did they decide rather than than go word by word for Todd, they would go word by word for Lloyd Lake? Maybe uh, that's my only guess. No, I didn't ever didn't ever ask because. I mean, I think the problem there was he was on the stand for two days, and you'd really have to be specific about, well, where in there did you really want to focus on? We can't just give you two days' worth of testimony. Or or you, you come back into court, and we have the court reporter read two days' worth of testimony. That wasn't going to work, because that's the only way they were going to be able to get that uh, was the um, – because with Lloyd Lake, they went over – the NCAA, you know, version of, of Lloyd Lake's, uh, obviously he didn't testify in, in the trial. So they had that, uh, but they didn't have, you know, <coughs> Todd's exact, uh, testimony. And that would have had to be read to him by the reporter. And that wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. So we got multiple questions asking this. They want to know the real truth from you, Dan. They want to know, uh, despite the trial, despite everything that was said, did USC, did anyone at USC, Tom McNair, Pete Carroll, or anyone else actually know about Reggie Bush, to your understanding? I wouldn't have thought so. Uh, I was around. I mean, I the first time I saw Lamar Griffin, it was at the U, USC-UCLA game, that I remember seeing him. And he had a Reggie Bush jersey on, and <clears throat> and he was doing interviews on the sidelines. And that was the incident that Reggie went nuts and said, I don't want you around. I don't want you doing that stuff. I don't want you out in public. I don't want you being interviewed, you know, all of that. And I don't think Reggie was comfortable at all with, uh, and I don't know that we even know what did Reggie know about what was happening, you know, 120 miles away from campus. He didn't, he didn't go home that much. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, you know, again, if you're doing something like that, how do you, you know, risk your Heisman Trophy season that somebody will come out and, and say this was going on? I mean, you just can't do that. Uh, and he would have been risking so much uh, to, you know, allow people to have any kind of a, a glimpse. And, and And the other thing was, Whatever his relationship with Lloyd Lake was, it was pretty obvious <clears throat> he wasn't going to let Lloyd Lake and Michael Michaels be his uh, agents. I mean, he didn't. You know, he whatever they think, you know, as far as Reggie was concerned, it doesn't look like he had, uh, uh, in his mind, an agreement that they were going to be his agents. I mean, he went with, uh, you know, Michael Ornstein. And, uh, you know, I mean, he was <laughs> – those weren't two of the – those weren't two great choices that he had there. But uh, uh, 
But I think, uh, you know, the idea that somebody at USC would have known that, I really, I, I don't think so. No, I, I don't have any, I mean, nobody has any proof of that, including the NCAA. So, I mean, you know, for them to find that they had proof, I think is, you know, that's where they, they should have lost the case because they didn't have proof. And, uh, you know, USC, I mean, and here's the problem with the, what the NCA does with the Committee on Infractions. Those people are said, you, oh, bring your, you know, bring all your knowledge of, you know, your experts, you know. I mean, Eleanor Myers, they portrayed her as an expert. And she had, she, you know, she was a longtime Temple professor, and her family, she portrayed them as big Temple sports fans. And she had no idea that Todd McNair even played at Temple. He was one of the great football players ever at Temple. You know, one of a handful of ever even got mentioned as an All-American. Went on to, you know, a really good NFL career. Now, she's supposedly an expert. Well, she had no idea. So, I mean, you had a bunch of people on there that weren't experts. But they did come with their own understanding of how the world works. And I think the problem with the Committee on Infractions in the USC case was they knew how badly they would have any program that they knew about, any conference that they'd been involved in, to do what USC was doing at the time. You know, should have won three straight national championships, just beating people, you know, like they did with Oklahoma and all that. They knew how badly they'd have to have been cheating. They just knew that. That was just a foregone conclusion that you can't be that good as USC was without cheating. Now, the problem was they couldn't find it. They go for the longest uh, uh, investigation, three and a half years. They can't find it. Uh, they go to the longest hearing in NCAA history. You know, and they're just throwing stuff up against the wall. And, you know, Todd was it. Unfortunately, they needed somebody to connect to Reggie Bush, and they connected Todd. Uh, but uh, to say that, that he knew... Uh, what was happening with Reggie. Yeah, I, I just think there's, there's absolutely, I don't think so. And I was pretty close uh, to the program. And uh, you, you just didn't have any sense that that was going on. I mean, I, I've covered uh, Kentucky basketball. And, you know, there were times when, you know, you knew what was going on with Kentucky basketball. It wasn't, they weren't hiding it. The people that were, you know, taking care of the players and that, they wanted you to know they were taking care of the players. You just didn't have any of that around the USC program at all. And uh, so, so I think, you know, they thought absolutely that must have been happening as it turned out. And, and the only example of it was not somebody trying to take care of a, a really good player to get him to go to USC or stay at USC. The only evidence we have of somebody giving anything to a USC player was to getting to leave USC. So, I mean, there's no way USC is involved in, uh, you know, somebody trying to get uh, Reggie Bush to leave USC. It doesn't make any sense. USC, they wouldn't want USC to know that, that we're trying to, you know, give him, money and benefits and all that or his parents uh and and getting to leave because usc wouldn't be in favor of that exactly so uh so i i think it happened and let's say ludwig was probably really good at doing things 
that people didn't know he was doing. I mean, that was his life, pretty much. And he didn't want people to know. So that's that would be my take. Okay. Speaking of Lloyd Lake, other people have asked, why wasn't Lloyd Lake called to the stand? I think Bruno even asked that. Yeah, they would have liked to, you know. And I don't know, could he have hurt you? Because people don't believe him, I don't know how much he could hurt you unless he had flat out, you know, irrefutable evidence, which probably he didn't. Um, uh, Would it have been worth exploring the whole Lloyd Lake angle? Uh, Well, right now, when you look back at it, anything would have been worth exploring at this point. Uh, So, I mean, you know, if you're going to lose, you're going to, you're going to lose. So uh, uh, I just think when we asked that question, uh, Scott Carr just said, you know, it's hard to put somebody on who, you know, you can't, you can't believe. And you you just, so what are you trying to get him to say? And if he says it, is it, is it even remotely the truth? so that's a that was a that would have been a tough one. Yeah, um, but I is mean, it if, if you could have gotten him to say, you know, now that I look back at it, I really and and if he if you could have gotten him to say, you know what the NCA said, I said, I didn't say that. I I, I didn't know what they were asking me about. I, I no, I didn't know. I I now that I think about it, you know, I I assumed maybe that Reggie told. Uh, Todd McNair about me, but now I understand from Reggie he never did that they were trying to always, uh, you know. And that night we took the picture, it was obvious he didn't know who I was. Um, and yeah, he those three phone calls that same night, yeah, he was trying to track Reggie down to to get him together with Percy Harvin. Yeah, now if you could have gotten him to say that again, game's over. I mean, where he is, what he would say. I don't have the slightest idea, but, you know, I guess now you'd probably like to find out. Yeah, because, I mean, I, I think we got the sense from McNair's lawyers that they didn't really trust him, but wouldn't it just be beneficial to even put him on the stand and show how he's just all over the place and it looks bad on the NCAA to even trust Lloyd Lake to begin with? No, that's a good point. I mean, you, you could impeach him as an NCAA witness back in the USC case. <coughs> By putting him on the stand now. Yeah. And then say, hey, and you believe this guy? Are you kidding me? You used this guy to take down USC with the, you know, the biggest penalties ever and to take down, you know, take Todd McNair's career away from him? You did that? Well, so, yeah, yeah. Again, man, you hate to, hate to do second guessing. But that's <laughs> so what, what we're doing. <laughs> That's what's, you know, and that's what happens in, you know, and the other thing we do in, in this sports. I mean, yeah. you know, if, if things go badly, it's easy to say you could have. So I, I don't know. I always wanted, this was my dream scenario, that they would get Lloyd Lake on the stand and he would say, hey, I didn't know Todd McNair and I know, I realized he didn't know me. And then Costa would get up and say, wait a minute, you can't believe Lloyd Lake. He's a multiple felon between... You can't... And I would have... I wanted a situation where the NCAA would have to impeach 
their star witness in the USC case. That was my dream scenario. Uh, <laughs> didn't, didn't play out, but uh, wouldn't that have been fun? That, that definitely would have been some fanfare, some drama. Um, we have a question from John and Brea. He asks, if, do you think Tom McNair will ever, ever coach again in Division I football? I don't know. I, I, I mean, he's going to be back coaching this year, and uh, uh, you, I, I'm just going to say I hope so. I, I really hope so. Uh, I wish some way. I know Costa uh, for the NCAA kind of said afterwards, "This isn't, you know, we don't feel like, you know." And I, I got the sense he was telling the truth uh, that we don't feel, I mean, how he really felt. We don't feel like this, you know, we're triumphing and, you know, we're, we feel sorry for, you know, Todd McNair and, uh, and the NCA has changed and we, some of those people aren't here anymore. And some of the stuff the NCA did, they know, you know, they're embarrassed about and blah, blah, blah. One would like that the NCAA somewhere, could come out and say, look, we pretty much absolve Todd McNair. It was a, you know, a close call with all the things that happened. We want to give him a clean bill of health or something so that you would like it that the NCAA could tell schools that they're not going to be a target if they hire Todd McNair. And how they could do that, I don't know. I, I, I don't know that the NCA has it in them. Um, you wish, you know, that th there, there was a mechanism to do that. It would be the right thing to do. It would be the fair thing to do. Uh, but until something like that happens, which is what this case could have been, if there could have been any finding you know, for Todd McNair, that it would allow the jury to say, yes, we find for Todd McNair against the NCAA. Um, but that didn't happen. You know, could USC ever, ever consider him again? Uh, you wish they could. I mean, they had an opening, you know, for running back coach uh, this year. And, uh, you know, you wish it could, but um, realistically, knowing, you know, how the NCAA acts, and I don't think they've changed, uh, not enough. Um, that, worry, that would worry a school. Would, you know, a school would say, do we need this? You know, do we, do we want to draw, you know, this kind of attention from the NCAA? And that, I think, is something else that maybe didn't come through as much as it needed to come through yeah. in, in this case because you know what was going to happen to somebody that hired, hired, uh, you know, hired Todd. I mean, that's why he didn't get a call back from, you know, Steve Sarkeesian at Washington. They couldn't take a chance. I mean, it just wasn't going to happen. And uh, I don't know that the jury kind of felt how strongly that was a factor in, uh, in Todd's, uh, you know, job search. Yeah. I mean, I think it was pretty evident when we're we were standing outside the courtroom and one of the the jurors turns to Todd and says, well, you'll find a job again. And Todd kind of just 
nodded and didn't really say anything because it was obvious like you don't fully understand what it means if the NCAA has a target on your on your back like Todd did you know I I, I don't think she understood he might never get to where he was again no, I, I think clearly the jury didn't understand that. I mean, I, the the reach of the NCA and the ability of the NCA to target you and just, you know, I mean, it's obvious uh, when they're saying things like, uh, you know, Josephine Petuto is saying, uh, you know, she believes Lloyd Lake uh, from watching a TV show uh, that they were – you know, there was targeting going on, and they wanted to. USC was in the crosshairs, and Todd McNair, unfortunately, was the you know the closest guy uh, that the NCA could could go after. And so here, you know, they wanted to say, oh, we didn't give him that much of a penalty, and yet he's the only person named in the biggest scandal in modern college football history with the biggest penalties, and to say. Oh, it was no big deal. He'll be fine. He should be fine. I don't know what's wrong with him. That was that was disingenuous to the point of of, of, of being absolutely dishonest, and they knew it. And uh, you know, they didn't seem to care. Yeah. That yeah. they yeah. You can't see, you know, if you're the NCAA, anybody in the NCA and you can't care about what happened to Todd McNair. Uh, there's something wrong with you. I mean, basically to make the committee on infractions more important than, than what they did to Todd McNair. Uh, and I feel sorry for those people that that's not, uh, you know, and they can't admit it. They probably can't even think it because that would be really hard if you were Eleanor Myers to know what you did to, you know, uh, a temple person, um, who'd done a wonder, who's had a wonderful, you know, life and a wonderful career. I mean, just the, I think I didn't know it was, a couple of those kids that Todd had coached back at Camden High School when he got out of the NFL and went back to Camden, one of the toughest places in the country to live and to certainly, you know, be a football coach. And a couple of those guys have gone on uh, not only to college but to great success as NFL coaches. And that that they were, you know, Todd's guys and Todd – you know, got them where, you know, where they are today. And who knows, maybe one of them, you know, should have, uh, should have been on the stand talking about what, what it meant for them when Todd McNair, uh, you know, went into Camden and got them involved with football. Uh, uh, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. But that was one of the most frustrating things is just from a observer's perspective, sitting there and hearing the NCAA witnesses twist things and make it sound a certain way where to the jury it probably seems believable and you're just sitting there knowing a bigger picture and going how is this how are they able to do this you know but they were able to kind of snake their way through their testimony to where they weren't necessarily perjuring themselves but they, it wasn't in good faith didn't look like the good faith part of it and I know you had to, I mean if I'm Eleanor Mark I can't allow myself to think what might have happened to Todd McNair. I can't. I just can't. I mean, it would be too hard for me to admit that I was part of what happened to Todd McNair. I, mean, I just, that would not be something I could, you know, allow to, you know, allow me to think about. So, so, you know, I mean, they have their point of view. 
and uh, we can look at it and say, man, I don't necessarily agree with it, but did it reach the point where you could say, you know, it was other than opinion and you didn't agree with it? That's kind of, I think, where they ended up with, well, they had their opinion and, you know, I don't know, you know, they didn't do everything right, but. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. going forward, Todd McNair is going to uh, start coaching in high school. And it was pretty moving uh, when Bruce Burlett in his closing said he's going to be there uh, for the first game. And I think Scott Carr and Scott Thompson maybe are going to be there. And then the interesting thing is that it sounded like the three women, the jurors who voted for Todd McNair, are also going to go to that first game. So the impact that Todd has had on these jurors to the fact that they're going to go to that game is pretty uh, impressive. Right, and they stuck with him. I mean, they they just absolutely believed that the lack of fair process from the NCAA was so just so obvious that there was no way they were going against uh, Todd McNair. Just, they weren't. They just you couldn't you couldn't shake them, and uh, you gotta you know. And they were totally not afraid to say that afterwards. I mean, it was uh, really interesting. I, and I obviously don't do the trials, but I can't imagine there have been very many uh, five-week, very you know, difficult trials that ended up with all the jurors and all the attorneys and the principal. I mean, everybody was there except uh, you know Judge Schaller and uh, and and Rose the clerk. Uh, in a big circle in the hall talking to one another about it. And that was interesting how that, uh, how that played out. I mean, and, and there were people who weren't happy about how it went down and, and weren't afraid to say it. And uh, I, I would guess that was, that's really rare. That You just don't see that. And again, Todd conducted himself so well in what has to be just, such a difficult situation over all these years and mm-hmm. no one you know you were you know they just tagged you because you were near yeah i i don't know how he kept his composure for those that many weeks when people are saying things about you that you don't believe are true i mean i probably would have been much less patient than he was um so that was one of the things that i was really impressed by he, um, that was amazing he did a, a fabulous job that has I mean, after all those years, and then they have to sit there for all those weeks, and and um, I'm amazed. I mean, that alone ought to, you know, register for people as to, you know, what kind of person, you know, Todd McNair is, is just the ability to go through that and then to handle himself the way he, the way, you know, with the, the disappointment of all of this, you know, all of these years, and then to have it end up the way it did, and the and the show, as you said, the composure and the and the grace uh, yeah. to handle it the way he did is uh, that was special. Mm-hmm. I think one of the more unexpected things, but kind of cool things that come out of this trial uh, were how many lawyers we met, you and I met, and how many lawyers are actually on the the peristyle. That was one of those things that was unexpected and and pretty cool just to meet people and, and talk to people on the PU that had a lot of expertise <laughs> yeah i mean you'd be sitting on the uh like they had these long benches and one of them on the fifth floor was at the top of the escalator and you'd be sitting there typing and you'd look up and somebody'd be going by 
you know, from the fifth floor to the sixth floor and, and you know, flash the, uh, you know, the, the V side, you know, the, the, the two fingers and smile. They had no idea who they were. Uh, you know, it looked like, you know, some lawyer in a, in a case. And they just happened to see you sitting there and, and, and give you the sign. And uh, that was pretty amazing. Uh, or people would go by and you'd be sitting there and then they'd, they'd stop and they'd come back and they'd say, oh, are you Dan, you know, Dan Weber? And yeah. And oh man, I'm following the trial. And, uh, and so, yeah, I was, uh, that was interesting. You know, the, the whole lawyer presence. Yeah, there's definitely a presence. Um, I think we're, we're, we've been going on pretty long. Any final thoughts that you would want to address? I mean, this is the final kind of look back on the trial. Anything you feel like saying before we wrap it up? Just that you hope the good that comes out of this for Todd, that there is a, a really an upside. And, um, and, and somewhere, somehow, um, this plays out well for Todd. And, you know, it, it didn't with the verdict necessarily, uh, but you just hope somewhere or somehow he gets, uh, you know, the fair treatment and the justice and, and all of that, that, that he deserves. And, uh, you know, does that mean the USC, you know, get involved in this or uh, this somebody? I mean, let's face it, had Todd McNair not done what he did, all of the stuff that the NCAA did all of the ways that they broke their own rules, all of the ways that they prejudged, all of the ways that they, you know, that this was a, you know, a corrupt agenda driven uh, deal wouldn't have come out. I mean, that's, uh, the NCA, they know what they did. I mean, they got rid of Roscoe Howard and Rodney Uphoff. They're gone. I mean, they just disappeared one day from the committee. Uh, uh, you know, they made some changes, whether, you know, that's just to not have anybody find out what they're, you know, what they're doing or not. I don't know. Um, I got a suspicion, but, uh, but I think Todd is part of, I mean, I think now everybody believes USC got really a bad deal. I don't think, and that wasn't the case immediately. So as Todd doesn't pursue this the way he does, all of that doesn't come out. So, I think Todd has has been a big part of turning things around on how people look at USC and the NCAA case. And for that, you would like somewhere for Todd to get uh, some sort of recognition uh, of his willingness to be the guy who lives the motto, who, who fights on, that that's what he did. And you want, you know, that doesn't guarantee just because you fight on, it doesn't guarantee you're necessarily going to win. But uh, he lived the motto and did a lot of good for USC in the process. And um, I, I just wish that, that that would be rewarded, that Todd, Todd was the fight on guy. And, uh, and much thanks to him, you know, for being the fight on guy and, and kind of exposing really how what happened to USC happened to USC. We wouldn't know this had he not, you know, been willing to fight on. Yeah. It's also worth noting that uh, the only comment he really had after the verdict was that he thanked um, the Trojan faithful for standing with him for the last seven years. And he said he really appreciated um, everyone's kind words and, and it meant a lot to him. So 
uh, he still is very appreciative of, of the Trojan family. And I think he very much feels that he's still a part of the Trojan family. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good point. I mean, he's still here. You wouldn't necessarily have to still be, you know, here living in Southern California. So he's definitely, you know, become a part of, you know, here's a guy from, from the East coast and, and played, you know, mostly in, in Kansas city in the NFL. And yet he's a, he's a considers himself a Trojan and we all, you know, should consider himself a Trojan. And when you, you know, if you ever run into, you know, Todd, uh, you know, shake hands and smile and tell him what a great, what, what a great job he, he's done and how much, uh, how much you, uh, you know, you want to see it, you know, go well for him. And, uh, that's all we could, that's all we can say. He, uh, he showed what kind of person he is through all of this. And, uh, and he should be very proud of that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Um, thanks Dan for joining me so, to wrap this up, wrap up the trial and give our final thoughts. Um, I think Ryan will be back soon if he doesn't get eaten by a bison on Catalina or something of that nature. Uh, and you and I will be back to talking football very soon, Dan, which will be nice. Um, that's going to wrap it up. Be sure to tune into the podcast next week, and we'll see you guys next time.